You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. This is Chris Costa, Executive Director, International Spy Museum. Today we're joined by Diane Foley and Cindy Lurcher, both from the James W. Foley Legacy Foundation, whose mission is to advocate for the freedom of all Americans held hostage abroad and to promote the safety of journalists worldwide. Thank you both for joining us for this important discussion. Today we're going to talk about their recent qualitative research study entitled Bringing Americans Home. That was released on June 24, 2019, in partnership with New America. In 2014 through 2015, four young Americans, James Foley, Stephen Sotloff, Peter Kasig, and Kayla Mueller, were publicly murdered after years of captivity by ISIS. Their tragic death spurred the 2015 National Counterterrorism Center U.S. Hostage Policy Review and dramatically reorganized our government's efforts in American hostage recovery. Let me go ahead and read the bio from each one of our guests. First, I'll start with Cindy Lurcher. She is the author and lead researcher of the James W. Foley Legacy Foundation's Review of the U.S. Hostage Policy, Bringing Americans Home. Cindy's research has focused on drawing hostages, their families, and the government closer to better support hostages and their families. Prior to working for the Foley Foundation, Cindy was a research fellow with the First Division Consulting in support of the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point. There, she researched a variety of topics, including counterterrorism sanctions, hostage-taking, irregular warfare, radicalization, and WMD terrorism. Cindy's background is in the hard sciences, where she collaborates with Miami University of Ohio, working on defense-related technologies. Prior to working with the Foley Foundation and the CTC, she was the co-founder and vice president of research at Mineral Sciences, where she contributed to developing technologies used to counter the effects of radiological warfare. 
Cindy received her Master's of Science from Miami University of Ohio and her Bachelor of Science from George Mason University. Moving on to Diane Foley. Diane is the mother of five children, including American freelance conflict journalist James W. Foley. She founded the James W. Foley Legacy Foundation in September 2014, less than a month after his public execution. Diane is the president and founder of the James Foley Legacy Foundation. Since 2014, she has led efforts to fund the start of Hostage U.S. and to promote the International Alliance for a Culture of Safety, ACOS, established to protect freelance conflict journalists. In 2015, she actively participated in the National Counterterrorism Center Hostage Review, which culminated in the Presidential Policy Directive 30. This directive reorganized U.S. efforts on behalf of Americans taken hostage abroad into an interagency hostage fusion cell, the Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs, and a White House response group. Previously, Diane worked first as a community health nurse and as a family nurse practitioner for 18 years. She received both her undergraduate and her master's degrees from the University of New Hampshire in Durham, New Hampshire. Again, thank you both for joining us today to talk about this important issue of hostage recovery and the Foundation's role in that important work. Diane, let's go ahead and start with you. Good morning. Good morning, Chris. Thank you so very much for this opportunity to talk about the James W. Foley Legacy Foundation. After Jim's two-year um, captivity and horrific um, beheading in 2014, I just felt compelled to do something to improve the lot of um, innocent Americans who are taken hostage abroad. It, I was just... Um, I felt certain that the United States of America could prioritize the return of their citizens and do better in terms of bringing our people home. So that is why within three weeks of Jim's death, we um, did found his, his um, legacy foundation. And the, the main uh, reason was to advocate for the return of all innocent Americans who are kidnapped abroad, be it by um, terrorist gangs or criminals, pirates. And more recently, we've recognized how many innocent Americans are in fact taken hostage by governments, if you will, unlawfully um, detained um, by those governments. And in addition to that, the second part of our mission is to promote safety among journalists worldwide, because otherwise we really don't know what's happening in the world. So that has been my mission. Um, Jim challenges me to um, help to um, improve the situation um, for American hostages and journalists abroad. So that has yeah. been my mission for the last five years, Chris. Well, it's an important mission, and I've, I've seen the work that you do, and it's important work, and uh, you're relentless. And you've ensured that this hostage issue 
is maintained as a national priority, correct? Yes. And to be honest, the first thing we did after Jim was killed was we helped fund the start of Hostage U.S. Together with the Ford Foundation, um, they matched our fundraising. And that allowed us to bring Rachel Briggs from the United Kingdom to the U.S. to start a separate nonprofit um, called Hostage U.S. That was, whose mission it was to work confidentially and quietly with hostage families um, through this ordeal. And it's primarily to deal with the myriad of issues that come up when a loved one and often a breadwinner is taken hostage. They also deal with returning hostage needs. So um, that was the first thing we did. And secondly, we turned to um, journalist safety and we worked with other international press freedom groups, um, freelancers themselves and media companies to start this Alliance for a Culture of Safety. Because freelancers do not have the safety backup at, that um, staff reporters have. Right. So they're in a much more vulnerable situation. So that's great background, Diane. Thank you very much. What what I'd like to do more directly is let's talk a little bit about what you did recently by the work that you came together to to essentially do the first non-governmental assessment of U.S. hostage policy, and that's the report that I alluded to, Bringing Americans Home. So let me turn to Cindy. You were the main orchestrator of this report and the main author. Can you talk a little bit about how you went about collecting the data and what was your main aim of the study? Sure, Chris. First, I just want to say thank you so much for having me here and just thank the listeners for also joining. Uh, but to answer your first question, we, we reached most of our participants by word of mouth and through invitations. We did make mention of the survey to the State Department, Hostage Recovery Fusion Cell, and various NGOs and asked if they would just kindly let their families know of the survey, but it was totally incumbent of the families to reach out to us if they wanted to participate. Um, to answer your sec the second part of your question, uh, the purpose of the study was actually threefold. And number one, uh, my main focus was really to allow former hostages, former detainees, and their families to be able to tell their story and share what their experiences were like with the U.S. government or NGOs during a hostage-taking event. My main focus really was to allow these individuals to be listened to and be heard. That was very important. Um, and interestingly, Chris, you know, each story was very unique. Even among the same family, all of their experiences were unique and impacted them all very differently. The, um, well, the second purpose of the study was to, ask, was to assess the Presidential Policy Director, Directive 30, known as PPD 30, and identify any systemic gaps that remain in the policy. And third was to not be critical, but work constructively with the U.S. government and relevant NGOs to better enhance the lives of hostage detainees and their families. So let's just review a little bit. Talk about PPD 30. When, when you started, obviously, this assessment, PPD 30 has been in place for several years. Tell us what that means so the average 
person listening understands what that directive does or did. Right. So before I go into PPD 30, I think it's important to reference the previous policy, which was um, which was NSPD 12 or National Security Presidential Directive 12. That was out of uh, George Bush. But um, the NSPD 12, that policy was entirely classified, including Annex 1, which discussed the personnel recovery and prevention of hostage taking. And for, for my take on uh, doing this re research, I think that the fact that NSPD 12 was entirely classified severely hindered U.S. officials from engaging with family members in a hostage taking situation. For instance, as we see in the report, hostages, not hostage families, had more success in engaging with U.S. officials at the State Department before PPD 30. And then, you know, as you mentioned earlier, in the intro, Chris, uh, after the shocking murders of James Foley, Stephen Sotliff, Sotloff, and Peter Kastig, as well as Kayla Mueller by the Islamic State, Lieutenant General Bennett Soklik from the National Counterterrorism Center, he led a team of senior government officials who conducted an internal review across the U.S. government. And what they really tried to focus on was just U.S. government coordination, engagement with families, and intelligence sharing, as well as policy. So from that internal review, President Obama instituted a new policy directive, PPD-30, which, um, which was announced on June 24th of 2015. And PPD-30, which is now mostly unclassified, added a new and very different component, which was family engagement. And that really had a major impact. So from the policy, um, there were several institutions were created, for instance, the Interagency Hostage Recovery Fusion Cell, which is housed at the FBI, and uh, a family engagement coordinator that's also at the cell. At the State Department, the Office of the Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs was established. In addition to that, the Hostage Response Group, which is within the National Security Council, and which is very important as well, um, kind of behind the scenes is the uh, creation of the intelligence community issue manager for hostage affairs. And they're housed at ODNI, um, Office of the Director of National Intelligence. And their job is really to focus and prioritize on intelligence support for hostage cases across these agencies. So you had a fusion cell that stood up. You had a a hostage recovery group at the White House, and you additionally have a organization at State Department, which is the SPIHA, which you talk about in the report. That's a special presidential envoy for hostage affairs. So this was essentially the, the bureaucracy stood up entities that were designed and purpose-built to support families and the recovery of hostages, correct? Right, right. And PPD-30 uh, was designed also to provide some continuity. So as you talk to families, did you get a sense that although their experiences were different in some cases, there was a sense that PPD-30 helped establish a certain uniformity? Was that your sense from dealing with the families? Right. So before PPD-30, a lot of the pre-PPD-30 families' experiences were very, very similar. Um, for instance, when PPD-30 families learned of their loved one's kidnapping, you know, their instinct is to reach out to the White House, State Department, or FBI for any assistance. 
And for a lot of these families, they had very similar experiences in that they were often misled or felt lied to, and some were even told to just go away, um, which is hard to stomach, right? So families would, you know, in addition, families would try, they would ask to speak with the Secretary uh, of State, and some of those requests would often get denied. Um, even FBI agents at the time, they would, they would often seek families and ask them for information instead of providing families information and recent updates of their case. So it's just everything just kind of seemed backwards and a lack of continuity. Um, but after the implementation of PPD-30, things changed across the board. Uh, families have a much different relationship with the State Department, with the installation of the CHA. Um, the CHA really was critical in helping families develop foreign and domestic contacts. They also assisted families in engaging with foreign ambassadors to discuss recovery strategies and so on. Uh, the CHA really, the, for the families I spoke to, the CHA really became an instrumental partner in the recovery of their loved ones. Now at the hostage no, recovery fusion, I'm sorry. No, go ahead, Cindy. Uh, with the hostage recovery fusion cell, families are receiving more mental health support, financial assistance, and assistance in handling the media. And, you know, in addition to that, regarding the recovery of hostages, I believe the cell's former director, Rob Saley, um, recently mentioned that there's been over 200 recovery um, efforts of uh, hostages, returning hostages. And, you know, and other family members, they, they found that the cell was very important, especially during times of change over an administration. Uh, with incoming personnel, which is just a natural order of things, they, found, they were worried that they were going to have to focus on bringing all those individuals up to speed. Instead, the cell briefed them really well, and it didn't, the priority to, did not shift from recovery options, which families thought was just excellent. So that's, that's some great feedback, Cindy, and uh, that's excellent background. So that became the foundation for assessing where we are today, and that's really the essence of your research. So what were the biggest takeaways from, from your report that you just produced? Right. So, I mean, we had several several findings. Um, you know, not again, not everything's going to be perfect, but I mean, we found across the board that the U.S. government has been more helpful in working with these families. Um, in addition, you know, from the perspective of families, there's been an increase in U.S. government coordination and intelligence sharing and communication after PPD-30. However, families still, you know, still share that, you know, information kind of ebbs and flows. Um, there's been an increase in the U.S. government's ability to share candid assessments and plans and recovery options with hostage families. In addition, uh, the geopolitical situation, which is very confusing, especially for some family members that aren't grounded in what's going on around the world. Uh, the U.S. government has been very, very uh, impactful in being able to bring families up to speed so they can understand the context of, where, of the situation that their families are in. And one, you know, an important finding, you know, the priority, the emphasis of priority is definitely increased on for these families, where before, you know, the pre-PPD-30 families just would simply say, absolutely not. Um, I know, Diane, you might be able to add a few of the findings yourself. 
Well, as, as you say, Cindy, um, the the best parts were that here it, this um, PPD 30 created an interagency effort. So FBI, State Department, um, intelligence were all working together. Whereas when Jim was in captivity, I would be sent from shuttled from one department to another, and they often didn't um, seem to know even the agent who was working on the case. So there was no working together. So that's a huge improvement. And and the fact the family engagement person has made a big difference for families because they, they have someone to um, look to for help, actually, who remembers who they are and can uh, um, help them coordinate with the most important person to talk to. And of course, the declassification. So those um, huge improvements um, were uh, applauded when throughout Cindy's um, research. I'm sorry, I wanted to make the point. We don't want to be overly, the U.S. government shouldn't be overly self-congratulatory because there's still some work to be done, obviously. We still have to continue the pressure. So can you identify some of those areas that really could use more improvement going forward? Absolutely. The you know, hostages need continued financial, mental, and physical health support upon their return. Uh, that is a that is a very important issue, and it's not just short-term uh, response from the U.S. government with these individuals. These individuals, former hostages, need long-term uh, support. Really, uh, in addition, you know, when it comes to unlawfully and wrongfully detained citizens, their their experiences are they mirror pre-PPD 30 families, and they do not receive the same level of support as hostages. To name a couple, there. Right. And I think you wanted to close that gap. And we're going to move into that in a couple minutes. The idea of unjust detainee families um, it, to make sure that there's an alignment with with resources. Right. I mean, you've been a driver and this report brings out the point that detainees unlawfully held by foreign countries, um, those detainees should be treated the way terrorist hostages have been treated in the eyes of the U.S. government. Is that a fair characterization? Yes, they have very similar, um, they've had a very similar experience to our experience prior to this um, presidential directive. They have very difficult a time um, accessing anyone who can give them information and can help them through this process. And you're so right, Chris. There were a couple of other things Cindy found from her research that that um, the top leadership is really essential. That the president and the White House, their prioritization of bringing Americans home is critical. I mean, it really is. Um, because often when um, interacting with various governments on other issues, there are opportunities for the president and the secretary of state to bring up the issue of any innocent Americans who might be held by that particular government. And the other issue that Cindy found out is that many American families who've lost loved ones, like our own, um, really seek accountability. Um, that people who threaten, torture, and then kill our citizens should be brought to justice, Chris. That, that 
is an area that um, without that type of deterrence, um, this kind of um, behavior will continue. Just like any criminal activity, there needs to be some accountability in um, this area. And, and the other thing is how important the interagency aspect is that it's very important to um, continue the balance of all different aspects of the government um, so that they all have a say in strat the strategy of bringing Americans home. Well, thanks, Diane, for raising the uh, important point of accountability. I mean, the report makes that abundantly clear that there's a need to make sure that uh, ultimately captors of any Americans held hostage or, or murdered abroad should be brought to justice. Diane, would you mind talking a little bit about where you are on the individuals that uh, may have been complicit with Jim's death? You argue that they shouldn't go to Guantanamo, a military commission. You'd like to see them go into the U.S. courts. Is that true? Absolutely. I, I just feel they should be brought to um, hear Great Britain and the United States of America have two of the uh, best justice systems in the world. And I would like them, you know, if the UK um, does not want to um, charge them and bring them to trial, I feel it's very important that our government um, takes the lead in doing that as a deterrent. So that people all over the world realize that they um, cannot um, kill, capture and kill Americans uh, without any consequence. So, yes, there are two of the British jihadists, um, uh, Cody and Al-Sheikh, are currently being held um, in northern Syria, and um, their um, being brought to justice has been held up, frankly, because Al-Sheikh's mother has um, uh, brought a suit in the United Kingdom um, saying that his rights have been violated by that detention in Syria. So that's holding it up. Currently, that suit is in the Supreme Court. But I've been working with a British barrister who has been trying to help us um, to um, at least have a voice in um, their, this um, situation but it definitely has delayed justice in that case. Justice delayed. Well, thanks for that, Diane. That's, that's a great update. Um, we were tracking some of that here, some of the uh, tribulations related to, to the case. Um, we'll see what happens down the line. What are some other takeaways, Cindy, that you have from the research? Right. So, for instance, um, families' understanding of U.S. laws and policies has been uh, an important issue, even pre and post PPD 30. Um, you know, it's important to note that you know the U.S. does definitely supports a no concessions policy, and part of the heart of that issue is the fact that families uh, want to pay private ransoms to terrorist organizations. So, and as we know, according to U.S. law. Providing funds to terrorist organizations can be interpreted as providing material support to a terrorist group. So, you know, some of these, some of our families, a lot of them in pre-PPD 30 cases, um, this actually happened where 
pre-PB3 hostage families were threatened with prosecution if they provided ransom um, or material support to a terrorist organization. So now when PPD-30 was implemented, President Obama came out saying, and now I'm paraphrasing that, no families will be prosecuted. And also on the same day, the Department of Justice reiterated what President Obama said, saying we've never prosecuted a family for paying ransom. So what's developed out of this is that currently families still don't have a clear grasp on how far this level of immunity goes. So for instance, um, some of the findings in the report suggest um, or, or report that families are wondering how far does immunity from prosecution extend? Can family and other friends and acquaintances be in danger of prosecution for contributing to a ransom fund that goes to a terrorist organization? Also, you know, will the U.S. government uh, seize those funds? And are third-party intermediaries, are they safe from prosecution when they're the ones, some of them, that are negotiating with terrorists or individuals associated with the terrorist group? So there's a lot of question marks around there. And I do think, you know, it's important for context to understand for the listeners that, you know, it's, kidnappings is a very lucrative business for some terrorist organizations, you know, and over hundreds of million dollars has been acquired you know, we see evidence of this with groups like AQAP and AQIM, both Al-Qaeda affiliates, where there is a letter that was found where they're both saying it, that it's a profitable trade and it's a precious treasure. So I think it's important to add that to the conversation of when we're talking about the private payment of ransoms and negotiations. Yeah, and I think Diane's made the point multiple times in different forums that there's just too much ambiguity still. Uh, it's not cut and dry. Is, is that fair to say? Yeah. Right. There, go ahead. No, I was just going to repeat the fact that, right, the only, the only thing that Americans have to lean on are the two statements from Obama and um, President Obama, excuse me, and uh, the Department of Justice, which were made on the release of PPD-30, which is in June of 2015. Right, but clearly no one's been prosecuted. That so there's some, you know, historical analog. No one's been prosecuted. That still doesn't make the families completely secure, of course. Right, Chris, and and I guess the problem is for an average middle class family is they would need to get donations from other people, and there we right. have no um, protection from anybody who might want to donate to help a family secure the release of the loved one. And another thing I think is important, though, um, is that ransom is not the only means of leverage. And I think that is something that our government needs to um, work more on the shrewd use of sanctions and other creative negotiations that often must be, might um, be necessary for our government and other experts to employ. That ransom, yes, is one means, but there are others that often captors have other things that they would like in terms of leverage. Um, and we can use um, sanctions as a very important tool in the return of our citizens. So you make an excellent point, Diane. I wanted to dive deeper on that. Your, your use of the word creative there is a distinction now 
PPD 30 made it clear that the U.S. government does negotiate with terrorists, but there's still a no concessions policy. So the government can actively dialogue with terrorists, correct? Exactly, Chris. And that, to me, is an absolute necessity for many yeah. reasons. First of all, I mean, if, if our government, if our best negotiators do not engage on behalf of a, of a citizen, um, that's the end of that citizen, essentially. Um, you know, if we don't negotiate at all. And that was the case when Jim was in captivity. It fell to our family to attempt um, a negotiation with um, Jim's captors. And they weren't interested in negotiating with us, you know. So I think we need to be, we, our government needs to engage the best of our negotiators to not only help bring that innocent person home, but also to gain intelligence about the captors for future prosecution, for just a better understanding of the threat they pose to our country. Um, and that was the case with um, the four Americans who were killed by ISIS. Had our government engaged and really found out more about who they were and what they were planning, um, it would have really helped our own national security to know more about ISIS at that point in time. Well, clearly, because of that horrific experience, we have evolved to the point now that the U.S. government, this hostage enterprise of the hostage res response group, SPIHA, at the State Department, the diplomatic outreach, as well as the fusion cell, in tandem, they have come up with creative ways to negotiate, to look at all strategies, and it's a full-time job. The enterprise is clearly at work, and uh, it was a painful evolution, I think. But along with the pressure put on by the report, the continued assessment, I think we're moving in the right direction. The trajectory is very positive. So that said, I want to dive a little bit deeper on the nuance between hostage cases and detainee cases, just to make it clear to the listeners. Any final thoughts? No, I think it's very important, Chris. Thank you for bringing up the distinction. I had no idea there was a distinction, but our government um, does make it a distinction that hostages are, in fact, those uh, U.S. nationals who are taken hostage by a terrorist, a pirate, or a criminal gang, whereas Americans who are detained by our government unlawfully is a, a totally different bucket, if you will, and currently is handled by consular affairs at the State Department. But there's a movement to, given this momentum, given the assessment, there is a movement to now align those resources to support detainee families that, that are held unlawfully or the, support the families of those detainees and support the recovery of those detainees. So, in other words, all of the resources that we've talked about will be leveraged uh, to support other detainees, not just consular affairs, but the good offices that we already discussed. Um, 
and the Levinson Act, you're very supportive of that, which mandates that the State Department applies criteria to establish unjust detention and then applies those resources. Is that, none of us are lawyers, but either one of you want to take on what Levinson's going to do for detainees? I am very excited about the Levinson Act. It's a very poignant uh, reason that is called that. It's named um, for Robert Levinson, the longest held U.S. citizen. Um, uh, and so their family brought forth this act um, this past spring. And um, it is very powerful in that it calls on our government to look at U.S. nationals who are unlawfully or wrongfully detained. It really calls on the State Department, mandates them really, because there are thousands of Americans who are detained around the world. Many Americans do wrong things in the world and should be detained, if you will, arrested for stealing or other unlawful activities. But there is this segment of unlawfully detained individuals that the Levinson Act asked the State Department to apply certain criteria so that these um, people can be named unlawful detainees and then referred to just the services you speak of, the special envoy, the fusion cell, and the hostage response group. Because, in fact, these families are in need of all those same services. And what it does also, um, Chris, is it codifies these. Um, PPD 30 is merely a presidential policy directive, which another, another president administration could change or abolish even. So this Levinson Act would, in fact, um, codify these um, uh, advances in our hostage policy. So to sum up, really, it, it gives these unlawful detainees and their families as I said earlier, it gives them the same resources uh, that that are leveraged for hostages that are held by terrorists. And really, this has been driven by legislators, but as well as the families. And I I think it it worth it's worth uh, reinforcing that all the work done to bring attention on the important issues of hostages has resulted in a trajectory for changing legislation or legislation to make the right bureaucratic changes in the government. So I think that's a really positive outcome of this work. Um, Cindy, any final thoughts on that before we move on? Yeah, I, I do. You know, as you brought up earlier, uh, the distinction between a hostage and a detainee is very important to make. And the reason is because depending on the two, it, uh, the government's going to respond differently. And and what's important at the heart of that issue, you know, for instance, you know, the hostage recovery fusion cell, they rely on funds supplied by the Victims Crime Act of 1984 to support hostage families. So when a hostage case occurs, it's a federal crime. And due to that crime, the, the HRFC can access those funds. Uh, whereas a detention by a foreign government on the other hand, they're not, violate, they're not in violation of the federal statute. So families of detainees are not able to ac 
access those funds. Um, and in addition, you know, the HRC, yeah, and the HRC currently, so that's, that's the funding that the, the, the Victims Crime Act is where they receive their funding, because so they don't have their own line of funding um, as of now direct, you know, from Congress. And from what I understand, I think the HRC would require something like two to four million dollars to operate. We'll be right back after this. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. So I want to transition a little bit to talk about the challenges in conducting the research. I mean, this has been an exhaustive assessment and a lot of great work went into this. I think you interviewed, what did you say, 27 families uh, when you... Yeah, 27 participants. That's right. So uh, what were your biggest challenges for conducting the research, Cindy? Well, to be completely candid here, uh, Chris, my biggest challenge was the emotional impact of it all. Uh, these cases were, you know, incredibly violent and traumatizing for all of our participants. And it was tough to not be impacted from hearing several personal accounts and responses from a grieving spouse or father or mother and, or even from their adult children. So, you know, I really appreciated when one of our participants said, and I'm, you know, to quote him, it was tough to separate the emotional from the intellectual. So in a lot of ways, that was very true. Um, so when, when it came to writing the report, I did my best to share the parts of their story as it related to the policy without minimizing their experiences in order to stay relevant to the topic. Um, I think, you know, one of the best decisions I made was to not record the interviews this allowed so many so many people to be able to speak freely and to really be able to vent and you know without having to add to the fears and anxieties of their words being used against them you know i saw absolutely no reason to add any additional stress on these families and i also became very conscientious about knowing what to share and what not to share and i recognized that some of what i heard was for them to share only in their own time so I did my best to be very cognizant of, of, of all of that. Um, so overall, I think, you know, due to the gravity of each and everyone's traumatic experience, I'd say my other biggest challenge was to keep the report from becoming emotional, but at the same right. time, let the report be informed by emotions, specifically the lament of our participants. Well, I think you were very sensitive to the hostage families 
uh, should be you should be commended for that. It, it's uh, it's quite a challenge. Obviously, it's traumatic across the board. Diane, any thoughts on challenges from your optic? Sure. Thank you, Chris. Um, one of my biggest challenge was to find a compassionate yet talented researcher like Cindy. Um, because I wanted families to not be re-traumatized by this, but rather to spur on continued support for them. So that was hard, and it was hard on Cindy, um, because a lot of the families really needed to vent, and it was very, it became very emotional at, with some families. One of my, our other big challenges was to find a returned American hostages and hostage families willing to discuss their traumatic ordeal because a lot of them just wanted to hide. You know, um, it's not easy to, it took a lot of brave families to take the time and go through um, the discussion um, with Cindy. Um, and I am so grateful for their courage in doing that. And the other thing is we wanted to protect their identity the best we could. And Cindy was very um, meticulous about doing that because we certainly did not want to inflict more um, trauma on them. The, the final, because ideally we'd like to continue to do this annually. And so one of the big challenges is funding this kind of work. Because, you know, Chris, the reality is that we really, um, from outside of government, we really do not know how many Americans are taken hostage and or how many are unlawfully detained. We really don't have that number. That is partly what the Levinson Act will mandate, that they sift through these thousands of American detainees and find out which ones are in fact unlawfully detained. We, you know, uh, suspect hundreds, um, but it would be helpful for all Americans to know how often Americans are in fact the target of a kidnapping. Right, and some of them are ill-defined, but I, I think you're exactly right, and I think that legislation will, will go far to help bend these these um, abductions appropriately and give us more data. Um, so you kind of answered the question in part that I was leading to. So you do both anticipate future studies, future surveys as we go forward? I am certainly hopeful, Chris. I'm hopeful because I think it is important for Americans to know, to understand this threat and to know that their government has their back, that their government is well organized and will do all it can to resolve some very, very difficult situations. These are not easily resolved. Often there are many political and national implications. So. Um, they're not easy, and we need the best of our government to assist in bringing our citizens home. So I'm very hopeful that we can afford to do this annually. Um, but we um, need the support of other Americans to do that. Right. Cindy, anything to offer? Yes, I, I do plan on continuing to 
continue to do this research. It's been so important. And I've, you know, and just, I mean, and just amongst the family members and some of the comments and encouragement uh, that they've shared and given me has been very impactful. So you can see, you can see the good fruits coming out of just this initial report. And for the next phase, I think it's really important to, since we've identified that detainees are having the same experiences as pre-PPD 30 families, is really to continue to push through and figure out how we can best serve those families. And to be able to essentially identify which ones are unlawfully or wrongfully detained. And at the same time, continue to work with current hostage situations and you know our you know when we did our report initially we only did interviews from april 2018 to august 2018 so that's really just a small little snapshot right. of the information we we're able to gather so with administration changeovers and personnel changeovers we know that the you know things can change pretty quickly so it's it's nice to be able to continue to um, be able to dive into these big questions and support these families. Well, I think it's very important. Uh, what are the other resources that could help our listeners better understand hostage and detainee policy issues? Sure. Um, great. Uh, yeah, so Brian Jenkins, he has an excellent report on the no concessions policies and um, on the deterrence of kidnappings of Americans. That's an excellent paper that came out in uh, January of 2018. Uh, start at the University of Maryland. They have an extensive database, the Global Terrorism Database. Also, uh, the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point, they have a report called Held Hostage, the great overview of kidnapping across time among uh, jihadist organizations. New America, they have a report to pay ransom or not to pay ransom. And also in, um, over at the University of Texas, there's a group where they discuss the deterrent uh, effect on the no concessions policy and the future of kidnappings. Um, I believe uh, Grant and um, George and Sandler. And most recently, Joel Simon, he wrote a book, We Want to Negotiate, which dives into government responses across the world and the privatization of security firms who handle hostage negotiations negotiations and such and you know and honestly ppd30 the policy itself you can find online it's very informative yep it's unclassified online uh as well as your full report bringing americans home is available correct yes yes you can find right. it on the james foley foundation website as well as new america under bringing americans home so what we'll do, we'll have a little time before we actually post the podcast. What we'll do is also uh, we'll establish the links that you just provided so that uh, our listeners can go to those resources or we'll make uh, a reference list. So thank you very much for all that. So is there anything that I did not ask you that you would like to address, starting first with you, Diane? Oh, thank you, Chris. Um, I do want um, your listeners to know that thanks to a lot of generous donors, we were able to hire an executive director who is now based in Washington, D.C. We have a new director, Mar Margot Ewan, and her role will be to ramp up the hostage advocacy. She is a very talented young attorney who will be working on the Hill and, and help to educate a lot of our 
um, senators and um, congressmen about the breadth of this issue and how many Americans it in fact impacts. And um, we also are, are working with the legislators to add a few, um, we have a few recommendations that we feel would make the Levinson Act more, um, a, a stronger act, if you will. So, um, you know, one of them was to add a family engagement coordinator, add dedicated funding. I think that's very important because the fusion cell cannot possibly handle the addition of hundreds of unlawful detainees um, without dedicated funding. Um, and also to add a, a manager of intelligence like the PPD-30 has. Um, and a full-time special um, presidential envoy. Currently, that position is a part-time position, and it really needs um, full-time um, work. It is uh, a very busy, important position. So um, thanks to the addition of Margo to our staff, we hope to be able to add any pieces of Cindy's findings, um, to make the Levinson Act even stronger to protect innocent Americans who are taken by um, governments around the world. Thank you, Diane. Cindy? Uh, yeah, I hope, you know, I encourage the listeners to read the report. It's, there's a lot of information there, and we really go into in greater depth of the pre-PPD-30 experiences. And I think to be able to understand the successes so far after PPD-30, um, it will help provide more context from where we've, where we've started from and where we are now. Um, I also, you know, I also, I'm very encouraged by the fact that the State Department and the Hostage Recovery Fusion Cell, they've been very, they've been very supportive and, and, and received the report really well. And it's just encouraging to know that we can, constructively move forward and continue to help these families. And, you know, and not everything is perfect, but we're looking at those situations and we're working from them. So it's, it's encouraging to see and to watch and look forward to the future. Well, thank you very much, Cindy, for, for all of that. And I should underscore, and it's been implied as we talk through all this, there's a great deal of quiet professionals, dedicated civil ser servants that continue to work on these matters day in and day out. I think, as I've said a couple times already, I think the trajectory is very positive, but there's more work to be done, and we can never be self-congratulatory because there are still f families out there that are looking for resolution. And uh, what's important to note is the work that you have both done in the collective to to just make the public more aware of U.S. hostage policy and the impact on hostage and detainee families. So thank you for all of that. Thank you for your tireless work. Well, thank, thank you for having me. your time. We so appreciate it, and we appreciate the um, listeners taking time to listen and our current administration for working so hard on bringing Americans home. I'm very, very grateful to you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we'll post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, 
email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTL Spycast. That's INTL Spycast. Talk to you next week. Thank you.